On the podcast today, I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Dan Hayworth, co-owner of Box Construction. He's a man that loves to challenge the status quo, and you'll see how when they were thinking about the philosophy at the start of Box Construction, how they were thinking very differently in pursuit of a better customer experience. We asked Dan how he would use a magic wand to solve some of the big issues facing the industry right now. Dan also shares why we should focus more on community. In my view, Dan is one of the best minds in the construction space. You're really going to enjoy this episode. Hi Dan, welcome along to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hi Ryan, thank you for having me. Hey look Dan, I'm quite excited about this. I've been fortunate enough to have some involvement with you over the last couple of years. Uh, Really appreciate the deep thinking you do around uh, many things. Uh, but I think in the context of today, certainly around construction and how we build get better communities and, and the like. Uh, so I'm looking forward to sharing some of those uh, insights that you've developed with our audience. But let's lead off with a few fast back questions so the audience can get to know you a little bit more. Are you a breakfast or a dinner guy? Breakfast. Why is that? Oh, I've just got a bit more time in the morning and um, I'm English, so I like my bacon and eggs and mushrooms and um, yep. Yeah always was told by my dad fuel up in the morning and then you'll be fine all the yeah, way through the day any any black pudding on the plate oh sometimes you kind of need black pudding with um um with uh, baked beans i think they go well together yeah got it got it on holiday mate are we likely to find you bungee jumping or sucking a cocktail on a pool lounger yeah oh, somewhere in between i reckon I, I can't sit around a pool for very long can't sit sit around for very long <laughs> so uh yeah it's probably making a splash in the pool and I know you're a consumer of books in a, in a large way. You read very diversely and pick up some very interesting uh, texts, or at least you think they're interesting. I think they sound <laughs> incredibly mind-numbing, but you, know, you are a broad reader. Do you tend to read the real thing, or do you like electronic? Uh, real thing, always. I, I can't scribble on a, an iPad or whatever. I tend to make notes in books just to remind me about stuff, so uh, it's got to be the real thing. Okay. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Good man. Uh, what's your routine? Do you like to be an early riser or are you a night owl? Oh, God. Um, probably an early riser. I've got to say, no, I prefer being up in the morning. Mm. Yeah, when the sun rises, I think it's one of the best. It's, it's very tranquil, one of the best times of the day. Yep, gets the right, uh, right chemicals in the brain in action, mm. I believe. And how about entertainment? Would we likely find you watching a thriller or a comedy? Thriller. Thriller. Nice work. Hey, Dan, let's lead off uh, just a little bit about your uh, business, or at least one of your business interests is Box Construction. You're, you're one of the co-owners there. And I think right from the outset, you chose to approach the, what we, I guess we'd probably refer to as the traditional construction model a little bit differently, uh, whereas rather than doing an architecture practice or a construction company, you decided to bring them in under one roof and Box serves both of those. Can you give us some insight into why you thought that would be a better model? Yeah, well, I think one of our clients summed it up well the other day. They, they said the reason we came to you was because you own your problems. and you know, I, I'd always said to people, oh, look, there's only one person to point the finger at. But I thought that summed it up really well. The problem we have nowadays is everyone's trying to shift risk onto everyone else. So, you know, the architect sits at the top of the food track chain and he's trying to shift risk onto the engineer and then onto the builder and the builder's trying to shift risk onto the product supplier. And ultimately it all ends up in a, a smouldering heap at the, the door of the customer. And, um, and so... 
Box was really an attempt to change the, the, the business model of the industry and say, hey, look, we're going to do things in the way that the old master of works or the traditional master builder would do things. You know, we're going to be responsible for sorting out the design and we're then going to come along and we're going to build that and we will own our problems along the way. So that's it in a nutshell, really. And so we certainly see the customer experience piece of that being enhanced. How about from a pure business ownership piece? Do you think it's uh, more effective and, and uh, I guess ultimately more profitable because you're, you know, when your architecture team is designing that, maybe the building team is closer, so you're getting some better efficiencies and that kind of thing in your design? Do you see that panning out? Uh, no, it's really hard, which is why <laughs> I, uh, I think over the years I've realized not many people do it. Um, and primarily because you've got two very different cultures. You, you've got the designers, the creatives, who actually don't want to be burdened with the practical realities of actually having to build what they draw on the page. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, <laughs> I remember a few years ago we, that we had a massive in-house spat because one of the architects turned around to our builder and uh, he said, um, sorry, mate, I'm not here to make your life easy. And, and it was like, well, kind of, you know, this is what, what we're meant to be all about, you know. It's meant to be a team that works together um, to make the customer's life easy. And if we're not making each other's lives easy internally, then um, the customer's going to end up getting a raw deal. So, you know, we've worked really hard over the years to try and bring the design and the build teams together and get them working and thinking about projects together and getting them to understand what each other does and the challenges that each of those teams has. Um, and even today, you know, 12 years later, I was um, driving somewhere with, with uh, one of my, my fellow founders who's the builder, and, you know, he, he was saying, oh, I've just got to have this, this, this chat with the design team. You know, they, they, they really need to understand some of these problems that we're having around the foundations and this, that, and the other. So it's... It's ongoing, you know, it's, it, uh, it never stops and it's, it's hard to strike that balance between sort of design um, excellence and, um, and build excellence, you know, um, and to make them come together. And, and also it's, it's a very complex um, environment, you know, buildings become more and more complex, you know. Long of the days where there was one guy responsible for the design and build, you know, we've got engineers involved, we've got um, all kinds of different materials and the building codes grown and, and you know, you've got compliance and, and not to mention the financial risk. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a juggling act. Um, yeah. It's certainly not for the faint hearted and there are um, easier industries to work in. So why are you still on this one? Because uh, of the challenge. Because of the challenge, I, I, the key is, you know, being able to take risks, but knowing that you're not going to lose the shirt off your back, you know, and as long as, you know, you can keep things um, sensible and um, don't overextend yourself. It's, it's, um, it's very rewarding building stuff, I think. Just that act of creation and building is, is uh, pleasurable. Absolutely. And if we think about the leadership and culture aspect of what you just described, where you've got uh, creatives and, and doers, if I could broadly put them in those those categories, and uh, we see that in many industries, right? It's not certainly not a unique to construction challenge, that one. 
what uh, insights or advice would you give to other leaders out there that are maybe battling with that in their own organisations where they have uh, creatives and, and doers? Look, I, it, it's a tricky one. I, I think the link between designing and doing or making is, is broken. And I think designers in all industries are further and further away than that they've ever been from the actual making or the creation process. Um, and to that end, I think architects are becoming increasingly um, irrelevant or, or marginalised in a way. Um, they, you know, you, you've you've had we've had the growth of the star architect over the last 10, 15 years, you know, they, they seem to just build these big flashy uh, houses and very few designers, whether it's in, you know, product design or whether it's in, in house design, very, very few of them are involved in the actual making and the creation and they, they have a lack of understanding and the practicalities of how to put these designs together in a way that works and is durable and sustainable and, mm. and cost-effective. Yes. Um, so I think that's a real issue in terms of how you sort of re resolve it. Um, I think it's, it's about finding the, you know, it comes all down to finding the right people and, and often the best designers and architects that we've had working for us have been the ones who will go home at weekends and build stuff. And they are actually closet builders. Likewise, the best builders are actually closet architects. Um, and that they, they have that good sense of design. You know, I think, um, you know, one of the guys who, who works for us is as good as many of the architects I know. You know, not only has he got a, an acute uh, sense of design, um, but he, he does strike a balance between what works in design and also what can be built. Right. Um, so... Yep, it just comes down to, to mindset. Yeah, mindset. And if you could uh, clone that person, that'd be quite helpful for the growth of the business. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Invaluable. You know, how do you train someone? How do you train someone to take on that mindset? And the way we're approaching it is uh, just to immerse those people in the day-to-day -day of uh, the person whose job they're influencing. So that might be, you know, the design guys uh, ending up on site and taking a more active role in what's going on on the site um, and, and even getting involved. Likewise, getting the builders involved more in the design side of the business and getting them to sit over the shoulder and talk through the designs and understand why the designer is doing this and and get their heads around what is being designed and offer you know good input at that stage. So yeah, you, you just need to make sure the two the two cross over. Yeah, I love those three aspects you talked about of going, any design needs to be buildable, it needs to be durable, and it needs to be profitable. And they weren't quite your words, but those were the, the kind of essence that I took out of those. And if you have any team or organisation like your own that's uh, constantly thinking, how do we tick those three boxes on everything that we do, uh, you're probably going to lead to some pretty good outcomes. Yep, yep, absolutely. Nice. Yep. In certainly in the New Zealand market and, and particularly in the Auckland housing, residential housing market, there's been uh, any number of articles about a supposed housing crisis, about uh, affordable housing is just not possible, how we can't build houses fast enough, consenting challenges and programs, etc. If I was to give you a magic wand, how would you go about delivering in 
affordable, effective housing at speed into the New Zealand construction market? I mean, small question. Should only be a one or two word answer, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, Ryan. I mean, that's that's a real, that's um, uh, yeah, real, real simple, broad brush. What I do? Okay. Well, break, break it down for us. What, what? Yeah, you know, when you've obviously you've been in this industry for a long time, you you are a guy who does a lot of thinking, not just about yep. how do you deliver a solution to the dozens of clients the box has, but you think broader and think about the industry as a, as a whole. You know, maybe start with what do you see as some of the challenges the industry faces at, at the moment, and then how how have you thought about some of the ways we could solve those? Yep. Well, I was just going to come back to your 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 magic wand question because, and and I, I might explain how I got there. But essentially, if I was Megan Woods and you know I could do anything, I would start up the guilds again. You know, and I'm looking at things like stonemasonry and ironmongery and uh, wood carving, you know, the, the old, um, you know, the, what the Maori called toya, whakaero. Mm. You know, and these are, these are crafts and skills that we've kind of, we, we're in danger of losing. And these skills produce buildings and structures from local materials and help us create a real sense of identity of what we're building. And I, I think we've lost sight of, um, you know, the, the, what we, we're doing nowadays, we, we try to think, you know, how do we build rather than what is it that we're trying to build? And ultimately, we're trying to build groups of villages and communities that feel some sense of ownership and belonging to those communities. And it's got to be driven from the bottom up. Um, it's okay, you know, someone in Wellington, they can say, okay, well, you know, here's essentially the DNA, here's the master plan of what we're trying to achieve. But ultimately, you've got to empower the guys on the ground to be able to deliver this. And I think we need to look very much at the scale of what we're doing. You know, for instance, I saw, um, I saw a proposed subdivision the other day calling itself an urban village and then talking about buildings up to 12 stories high. And I was thinking, sorry, I don't see the village in this. And, you know, I mean, it's questionable the value of a building that's any more than, you know, three to five stories high, just in terms of losing the connection with um, uh, everything that's going on around it. But I think we, we've got to first of all, not panic about the, the, the housing crisis. We've got to take a look at how we actually go about creating, you know, what is the right scale for a community? Um, how should we, instead of being distracted by the car, how should we um, design this community or this village in order to um, enhance the connections between the people who live in that village? How do we build it? What materials, what patterns uh, what what craft do we need to create this thing so it's beautiful, it's durable, um, people have a real sense of belonging or ownership to it. The problem is nowadays we just build a whole load of disposable stuff out of chemical soaps, materials, synthetic materials from supply chains that are extremely long and complex and full of friction. And it just takes one pandemic uh, and, you know, we, we start questioning the whole thing. So I, we, we're still in that shack mentality, you know, putting up 
weatherboard buildings uh, that were originally prefabricated in England and got shipped over to New Zealand. And, and you know, we, we still build glorified sheds effectively. And I think we've really got to try and think about what it is we're building and then how we go about building those things because I see a real great opportunity for New Zealand to find its um, sort of architectural identity, if you like, and to find that we really have to look closer to home, look at, um, look at you know, our, our cultures, look at our local materials, the local patterns, and then, you know, build a system of trades and skills and crafts around that. You know, if, we, if um, you know, we, we've got an issue with young people, uh, Maori, indigenous pop, uh, peoples, um, you know, being unemployed, then I think this is a great option for someone in Wellington to wave their magic wand and say, right, we're going to invest in the long term, the future of the building industry. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to, you know, support all these guilds and these training schemes. Um, hey, um, Ryan, you want to build a new wall in your, on your property. You know what? Forget about the picket fence. You pay for the materials and then we'll get some of the, the guys from um, the uh, Stonemasons College and they'll come along and they'll build you this beautiful wall. I mean, you know, and it'll cost you the same as your, your picket fence that you'd normally have to paint every five years. I mean, what an impact that might have on our streetscape, on our urban environment. You know, just something as small as that. The, you know, you're getting a great a great wall um kids are getting trained up in 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 a craft they're building stuff they're creating value in the community that that for me is how you you start to to shift the needle on on an industry it's 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 bottom up it's not top down and it takes time and i think that's the other issue is everyone's so impatient you know oh, we we need a hundred thousand houses we need them tomorrow um but these things take um, a generation to do properly um, they take time so uh, we've got to yeah be a bit more patient and considered and create the right regulatory environment for for these things these kind of initiatives to happen what countries have you observed overseas that you think are doing a uh, um, you know maybe it's a better job than New Zealand or maybe it's a inspirational job how who have you observed that that's providing good examples out there well, I'll tell you one person who's doing great is the mayor of Paris at the moment, Hidalgo, who is, um, she's Spanish, French. She hasn't said how, how you know, this is how we're going to do it. She's basically said, I've got this vision that Paris is going to be a 15-minute city. And what she's meant by that is that everyone within 15 minutes, whether it's on your bike or your e-scooter or, you know, maybe even a you know, quick walk, is able to go to a shop, buy some local produce, the, the necessities of life, be close to a cafe, you know, the center of culture. And COVID really has accelerated that in Paris. And I, I saw a lovely thing the other day of, a, it was a shot of one of these streets in Paris um, that's already you know, really beautiful and they've closed the street and the local businesses are now allowed to come and set up in the street and they've got their bistros and their cafes and the commerce and and the guy who, who posted it basically said, damn it, how much more beautiful can Paris get? You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not fair. Um, so I think 
you know, she's, she's really um, got the bit between her teeth and is bringing this idea of self-sufficiency more at a sort of village community scale into, into a, a big city environment like Paris. Mm. And Dan, I know you've spent some time looking at uh, modular building, being able to build at scale and at speed. And I realize that those are slightly at odds with the concepts you just talked about of going, you know, this is a long burn problem and we need to be uh, patient, uh, et cetera. But tell me what is what has been your insights and thinking around uh, how we build today versus some of those things like modular and mass factory uh, automation to, to prefab? Does it still have a place? Do you think it's it's uh, an approach that, uh, that New Zealand should still be looking at? Yeah, it's a bit of a paradox from what I've just spoken about, but I think fabricating architectural elements off-site in part, uh, I was going to say or whole, but no, in part, is, is hugely relevant. Um, I do think automation, the subject of automation, has become a little bit of a fetish, uh, not, not just in house manufacture, but just in general. I think OSM and fabrication, those terms are being used so much by the industry and... Yeah by politicians that it's clarity of purpose and thought around how to successfully integrate that has been lost. You know, it's... it's so Dan, just for some people in our audience that might not know, might not know what OSM is, stands for? OSM uh, refers to off-site manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the uh, building of houses or elements of houses using highly automated uh, machinery, and a um, you know a, a very efficient supply chain to build quickly. Um, so yeah, OSM. When we talk about OSM or prefabrication, it, it's a range of applications for building either building components or building um, houses at hold, and normally doing it at scale. Um, and as one of our one of our I guess challenges around pursuing uh, OSM or prefab is that. Uh, someone's got to make ginormous investment in capital expenditure, you know, very, very expensive machinery and factory spaces and, and those kind of things. So it so often becomes a barrier to entry for us to do that. Do you feel like there's a, a place for, uh, you know, maybe a, a mixed model of some government and private ownership to establish some of those kind of um uh, operations so that aspects of building can still be done uh, more efficiently and more cost-effectively than we're doing now? Oh, look, I think that, uh, yeah, so, so that's a really interesting question. So OSM has basically been talked about as creating individual houses and doing it at scale. It's an argument that's often offered by economists and bankers who are trying to optimize everything to death through automation and use the benefits of scale in the supply chain to drive down material costs and you know rely on, on long overseas supply chains, maybe a little bit of local uh, supplier as well. It's, it's basically driven forward by industrialists, industrial designers uh, and engineers, and not really by architects and you know, I believe that that view of offsite manufacturing, um, that view of centralized offsite manufacturing is quite dangerous. It's what I call the industry's Titanic problem. You know, it just takes 
you know, the iceberg, an iceberg to sink it. And that could be one of a number of things. It could be an earthquake. It could be a break in the supply chain. It could be a power failure. It could be uh, a failure of certain materials. It could be a sudden drop in demand. And then your entire capital investment um, is at risk. And so one of the, 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 the things you need to do as an offsite manufacturer to be a viable offsite manufacturer is you need either two things, a shitload of, of capital and uh, working capital um, to mitigate all those risks, or you need a really good pipeline, uh, a visibility of the orders coming through. And it's quite a, you know, it's, it's very difficult. The only people who have that pipeline are, our governments kind of or, uh, or getting to bed with large-scale developers who can guarantee you know thousands of, of houses per year but I think there's what I said at the beginning that I think it's still hugely relevant I think we're just we're looking at off-site manufacturing the wrong way we're looking at in terms of uh, fabricating entire houses I actually think we should be looking at fabricating components or small parts of houses uh, within systems, and these systems can be open sourced. So any designer can use this system and the system comprises of elements of a house and that element of a house could be a wall panel. And those wall panels, those structural panels for a one-story, two-story house are uh, being built in Auckland. Or you've got the pods for bathrooms and they're being built up north. Or you've got the pod that deals with the intake of air and water and expelling water from the building and those sort of what I call those sort of CPU pods are built down in the South Island. So it's a kind of more of a distributed manufacturing model where you're taking elements of the house and they're being developed in a sort of open market uh, by different manufacturers, you know, throughout New Zealand, uh, potentially with supply chains that are are grown locally and though those systems um, that use all those individual components those systems uh, those open source design systems can be embraced by kind aura developers um, architects who want to build cost-effective housing knowing that this is going to be a quality house meeting certain performance criteria and and so on so i think i think we just it's a question of scale i'm no more an evangelist of building two, 3,000 houses in a centralized factory. I, I really think we can be, be more clever than that. And, you know, people talk about, oh, well, you know, you've got to optimize it. You know, you've got to get rid of all the, 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 um, the, the waste and redundancy, but we've got to be careful because waste and redundancy are, aren't the same things. You know, it might cost a bit more to produce a distributed manufacturing model um, but there's more redundancy in that kind of model. It's a little bit more ex uh, expensive. You know, nature doesn't have any waste in it, but it has a lot of built-in redundancy, and redundancy creates resilience. Um, and it means that, you know, we're, you know, scale, the, the smaller the scale, the more resilient things tend to be. So look, that's a bit of a sort of ramble of different thoughts around um, automation and scale and design for manufacturing assembly and off-site manufacturing but essentially i guess what i'm saying is the recipe uh, that design for manufacturing assembly recipe that design guide should be open source and available to everybody and we can use off-site manufacturing to manufacture small components small pieces of that recipe so that local builders can put together the houses 
uh, or the environments that are designed by local architects. And hey, we can even use local materials. You know, we can use the stonemasons and we can use the ironmongers to come and add the claddings and um, create those beautiful doors. And some of those maybe architectural elements that are so out of fashion at the moment with our crave for, for modernism and horizontal lines and so on, you know, bring back more of that sort of neoclassical architecture that is more about craft. And I think the two can, um, I don't think they're mutually ex exclusive. I think, you know, automation and, and craft do have a place and can go together. Yeah, I, I love it, Dan. I think that uh, approach that you're talking about, that open source approach just has a lot of relevance. Who would need to be sitting around the table, do you think, to get something like that off the ground? Well, that's, that's a question I ask myself all the time, you know, and, you know, we struggle to get um, a lot of things out of Wellington um, currently. I've always thought it, it, it's up to the private sector, really, um, to drive it. The problem is creating open source systems. You know, everyone wants to keep the IP for themselves. So I think something like that could be driven by institutions like Kaing or Aura. You know, you're talking about taxpayer money that goes into the creation of these designs. So, you know, why not make them open source so that the taxpayer can, can actually use them? So I think, you know, having that, creating that recipe, which is essentially the DNA I was talking about earlier, could be something that's, that, that's done at a, a, at a higher level. And then leave the, the market to produce those pods, you know, the bathroom pods, the wall panels, the various systems and so on that, that those component parts that are required to, to go into the houses. The other person I'd really like uh, involved is, uh, you know, some of those, the, the, they've been termed the new urbanist thinkers, but uh, people like uh, Leon Creer, who's a Luxembourgish architect and urban planner, um, who is very much into urban design and concepts of scale and communities and craft and who have done you know various developments like this in europe and in the uk people who have the experience and can bring that to new zealand because really we're at the beginning of the journey here and and therefore there's so much potential and we, we don't have all the hang-ups and, and heritage that places like the uk do and issues about land ownership but that's a a whole different issue indeed it's a whole nother podcast topic right there mm. okay um what do you think your future holds in the uh building slash construction industry personally what do you what do you want to spend your time helping to resolve yeah well i'm really interested in, in investigating um this area of design for manufacture and assembly you know creating these open source systems and using that to I guess kickstart offsite manufacture prefabrication, but also at the same time open pathways for local crafts and guilds. I think that's that's hugely, hugely important and gives people a sense of purpose and sense of meaning. My first love really is is actually art. Um, I I was a painter and still do a bit from time to time. And you know, for me it's a meditation, you know, that you get that sense of, of joy and ownership creating something and i think it's really important both at an individual level but also as a community level uh, and it's something that that we're fast losing sight of so 
Yeah, there, there, there are a few things there that I'd like to be involved in, but um, yeah, getting more into that understanding of what it takes to design and build functional communities from the bottom up is, is of, of, of interest to me. In mm. the biggest challenge I see that is everything's got to start uh, so much earlier, right? You can't tackle these challenges when you're already at the zone of going, um, how do I put this uh, uh, residence on this section that's already sorted? It's that, it's that step back and thinking about urban planning and what's the, the makeup here and how will we connect community and what are our green spaces look like and what is our access to cafes and shops and um, what will the roading and pedestrian infrastructure look like? You know, it's, it's, I guess you can evolve them slowly over time by, by changing them slowly. But if you can start with that, that approach, it's a whole lot, whole lot better. Yeah, you, you can. I mean, I, I'm a great advocate of tinkering. Mm. And you're never going to get stuff right, okay? So, mm. you know, you've got to start somewhere. And a good example of, of that is, you know, what they're doing down at Queen Street at the moment. Look, it's not perfect because we've got an in, uh, existing infrastructure and it's pro probably going to be too heavily laden with commerce and we've got some pretty ugly, um, you know, residential yep. buildings down there. But, but, but the intent is great, you know, opening it up to pedestrians, we, we've been so distracted by cars and by modernism over the last, you know, 50 to 100 years that we've kind of lost sight of how to create meaningful connections. And I think that's a really good start. And, and then you, you just build and you, you learn from that. You know, there's been a lot of research done all over the world and, and some good examples that we can also draw on over the last 20 years. And if you're starting from scratch, it's, it's about understanding that balance between private space economic space and uh, civic space and those layers of interaction and often those three elements require or, or, or have a different architecture uh, but it's getting those things together and at the right scale mm -hmm. um, and that idea of scale fascinates me you know what is the the ideal size for a village you know is it 150 or is it 500 and at what point does a village need a church? And at what point do you need a, um, a, a police service? You know, they yeah. generally say up to 150 people, communities are self-policing, you know? So um, that, that concept of growth and stuff, you know, we, we can learn all that through experience, but you're absolutely right. We, we just got to start somewhere and, and, and then tinker and, yeah. and, and, and learn from there. Get on with it. And Dan, with the you know twelve years you've had in, in box, and certainly you've had uh, careers involved in um, consulting and design previously. Uh, when you look back at your um, career, and I'm making you sound really old at the moment, which was not my intent. Uh, but when you when you look back, what are you most proud of? I I'm really proud of the fact that I've created I think a really nice family here at Box, mm -hmm. and. We're all on this journey, to, journey together and we're, we're still together 12, uh, 12 years later and we're passionate about what we do and we're growing and evolving our ideas and we're open, we're, we're, we're curious and, you know, it's, it's a good creative bunch of people and we spend as much time here together at work as we do with our families, if not more. So, you know, to be, to have found something that is... Um, fulfilling that way is great i guess i have a frustration that 
Um, I haven't yet been able to move it beyond the walls of Box as a business. I'd like to have more impact on the sort of local you know, community and the built environment in general, but I kind of see that as the next stage. To date, it's been a huge you know, learning ground and a ground for tinkering and experimenting and trying to form my ideas uh, around architecture and design and what works and what doesn't work. And I think really the, yeah, the rewards will come. Indeed. And they, they have already, I think, uh, I've been fortunate enough to have some insight into, into Box and what you've achieved there. And uh, you've achieved a lot already. Uh, but like most uh, leaders and entrepreneurs, you spend a lot of time looking forward and not a whole lot of time looking back, which is, is, is uh, understandable. Uh, but I think you should be very proud and the co-owners of Box and the people that have been part of your team and family, what you've built has been, been awesome. Um, pun intended with the built. Yeah, actually, uh, I, yeah, thank you, Ryan. I, I should have I should have said there, you know, we, we've, we've put a lot of stuff out there in the built environment and a lot of it I am very proud of. You know, we go around and we, we, we talk to the owners and I'm proud of the relationships that we've still got with uh, the majority of, uh, of those people, which is um, absolutely great. Absolutely. Um, okay. If you could uh, live somebody else's life for a day, whose life would you live? Yeah, I think I think I'd probably you know, very boringly just want to be the housing minister for um, for a day, just to give me an insight of who whose shoulder I need to tap or whose email inbox I need to file one off to. You know, uh, just some insight in into how the whole place works and uh, how to make some inroads. You know, I think um, yeah, but for for just one day, it'd be great to get a grip of. Uh, how that all works yeah and it would be uh very valuable use of the uh housing minister's time to even let you uh sit um in that chair for a day because uh what you described in this podcast and what i've known from other uh, interactions with you is you uh you never think about yourself first you're always thinking about what's the impact to the community, what's the impact to the landscape. You always have a very uh, macro level of what's what's going on. And I think anyone bringing that kind of insight and attitude to that uh, seat for the day would do a, do a bloody good job. Yeah, th thanks, Ryan. I, I think I couldn't do it for longer than a day because <laughs> the, the whole concept of, you know, of, of bureaucracy just drives me insane. Yes. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> a, day, a day would be a dose of uh, enough. It would be perfect. It's just all I need for the year, yeah. No, it would. And reflecting again, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? Ah, be more patient. <laughs> be more patient. <laughs> yes, wise guidance. Uh, uh, yeah, just be more patient. And, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's it, really. What else would have I, I have done differently? No, I think, um, I think that's it. You know, no thing, you, know, you think when you're young and you're 20 that, that you've got to achieve everything by the time you're 25 and by your 30 and then you get to your 40s and you go, mm -hmm. I'm still not there yet. Uh, <laughs> so um, don't make decisions too hastily, I, I, I think. You know, it's only now that I'm, I'm thinking, oh, you know, if I could be back at university again, this is what I would have done. And, you know, maybe I would have gone on to study this because this is what interests me now. And even now I'm thinking, Shit, maybe I should go back to school and study this because it's quite, this is really interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, things change. You get families to feed and all of that. So um, yeah. Like it. Hey, Dan, we're uh, recording this episode of the podcast during Men's Health Week. 
uh, I think it's pretty well documented and publicised that mental health and physical well-being in the construction sector is not particularly well done, has the highest suicide rate of any industry in New Zealand, which is a appalling statistic for an industry to own. Yep. Um, give us some insight. What do you do for your own uh, mental wealth and physical well-being? I uh, try and spend as much time as I can uh, among family and um Loved ones, really. Us men are, are, are not great talkers, and particularly those of us who are more introverted, it's even harder. So it's good to be able to um, just relax and be in a, a very different environment and play with the kids. Just very simple things like that. And I think some of us aren't great at hu human interaction, but making the effort to interact with other people, really, you're always better at the end of it. It's never time wasted. And being very, very present at that time. And I think one of the big challenges, not insurmountable in any way, but one of the big challenges for people with uh, construction companies is the constant uh, phone calls and, and emails and you know, regularly talking to people about just the value of being present. So uh, if you're going to spend some time with the family, it doesn't necessarily have to be five hours. It might be 15 minutes, but for that 15 yeah. minutes, be very, very, very present. And I know that's something that's personally uh, connected to you and you've talked about the importance of, of mornings and uh, spending some quality time with, uh, with the kids in the morning before they get off to school, et cetera. So I know yeah. you... Um, it's yeah. time you don't get back. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And the construction industry is, is, is terrible for this. It, there's a huge amount of risk that builders take on and construction companies take on that, that people don't really understand. And people think construction is expensive, but I can tell you that the margins that building companies uh, put on are no way sufficient to cover the risks uh, and liabilities that they take. And it's one of the few industries where... The upside is pretty small, to be honest. You can do well on a job yeah. and the upside is small, but if you do badly on a job, it can wipe you out. Yeah. Uh, that's a pretty crap industry to be in. It is. Know. It's the um, industry of small wings and very, very, very big it, losses. If it it is. Wrong. And I, I think that that is a lot, uh, a lot of the cause of the stress and it's an extremely complex industry now and we need to do something about simplifying it and distributing the, the risk more evenly uh, and attack that sort of mental health issue, that, that issue of risk and, and, and stress at, um, at a sort of systemic level, uh, at an industry level um, as well. So, And I think it's a mindset, right? I mean, you talked earlier about the, uh, the chain of events between, you know, architects and engineers and builders and uh, consumers and supply chain and how there seems to be this prevalent desire for everyone to try to shift the blame and the risk onto the, onto the next person. And if we could reset that, and I know uh, Master Builders is doing some work at the um, at a high level associated with government and some larger construction organisations trying to get us back to going, how do we help everybody win here? How do we stop making sure that or it's trying to approach it like someone has to be the loser and, and uh, carry all the, the bad outcomes? Uh, I think if everyone could start coming to the table with that mindset of going, how do we make sure everyone wins here, that everyone um, does a, you know, a, a good day's work for a good day's pay um, and doesn't uh, spend you know, a few months of the year figuring about whether they are literally going to be able to put food on the table for their family or whether they're going to lose the shirt off their back. Um, yep. Yeah, I think it's something that an industry... Uh, at 
and holistically needs to own, right? We can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's really important. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to, to round out the uh, how you look out after yourself um, physically and mentally, um, you talked about spending time with family. Is there anything else you try to put into your routine to to make sure you stay in a, in a um, good state? Yeah, yeah. I always make sure that I, um, you know, do regular exercise. Really loved lockdown because you know you were forced to sort of get out um, uh, and, and walk around the neighbourhood every day and get some some uh, oxygen in the lungs um otherwise you just go mad um and but that's something that i've always done so you know getting out doing some good exercise um and and scheduling it in and making sure that you know you talk a lot, a lot about it about the the um the priorities you know and health being being number one really and if you haven't got your health you haven't got anything so yeah. that's super important and um yeah, I, I find just reading is, is is great for me too. You know, whether it was doing art or whether it's reading, it's still something that takes your mind off the issues and really, yeah, helps you think about other things and stimulates thoughts. And um, yeah, it's just it's good for the brain. You know, I, I think of health and fitness as things that are good for the brain and good for the body. Excellent. You know, you need those two different things. Yeah, and Dan, I did hear a rumor that. Um out exercising with the family during lockdown that you can no longer hold the family mantle as the uh, fastest runner in a house. Would you care to uh, comment, confirm or deny whether this is in fact the case? Oh, that's just fake news, Ryan. I think you've been reading the wrong things, listening to the wrong people. Never happened. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'd be pleased to know that uh, our next podcast guest will be someone else from the uh, Hayworth household <laughs> and we will uh, offer some uh, fake news controversy around that one. Hey Dan, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to have you join us on the podcast today. I love the way you think. I love the way that you do think about the macro impact of the choices that we're making as a as individuals, as companies, as in an industry at whole. And I'm sure you've really helped a few people listening today uh, think broader than um, just the next um, uh, soulless uh, house put onto a, onto a little block and how do we move on to the next one thanks for joining us mate it's been a pleasure well done you're welcome thanks thanks for having me on